The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning. Hope you're all doing well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm looking forward to getting into this passage. It's a familiar passage to many. Um, but our prayer is that God would actually, by the power of his spirit, open up our hearts uh, to hear his word in fresh ways. Um, he's actually spoken to us. You just kind of heard right over you, this is the word of the Lord. And we said, thanks be to God. Uh, what we're saying is God, who made you, has spoken. That's good news. It's good news that the God of the universe has spoken to us. And so we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit would open up our hearts to hear his word in fresh ways this morning. So would you join me as we go before the God of the universe? I'm Jesus even now, and would you open up our eyes to see your presence? Um, This spiritual reality that we can kind of cruise through life, even a Sunday, singing songs or maybe in a familiar place or for some this morning an unfamiliar place, but we can forget that you are present with us. Um, You're active, that you care about this moment in our lives. You care about this moment in our community. You care about this moment in our city. And so, Holy Spirit, we're asking that you would awaken our souls, awaken our spirits to hear your voice, to ultimately uh, see the beauty of your word, but also that we'd be led to see the beauty of Christ crucified and risen. Um, So, Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your care for us. Thank you you for your presence here this morning. Uh, Pour out your grace on us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Um, David Foster Wallace, in his famous commencement speech to Kenyon College in 2005, talks about um, society and talks about kind of like norms or presuppositions or values in society that we kind of live in but don't pay attention to. Um, The kind of things that kind of govern the way we think and the way we interact with each other, but we're often very blind to. And And he begins his Um, speech, his commencement speech with a really kind of silly little parable that's become famous, but I think it's profound and what it gets at uh, brings us to the heart of something I think we need to pay attention to as we walk into Exodus 20. And so here's what he says. He says, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit and then Eventually, one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? And he says, the point of this fish story is merely that the most obvious and important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and to talk about. The point of the story is that the most obvious and the most important realities are the ones that are the hardest to see, to pay attention to, and to talk about because they're the ones that we're swimming in every day. You're born into a society, you're born into a culture, and that culture is kind of breathing different values around you. And as we grow up in those, those have kind of begun to govern the way we think quite naturally, so much so that we're not even aware that we're in water. We're not even aware that there are values and presuppositions and frameworks that have kind of governed the way we tend to approach life. And I think it is so important, especially as we go into a familiar passage of Scripture, to pay attention to the water that we're swimming in. That you are in a a stream that is actually making it hard, that will make it hard to understand aspects of the Ten Commandments, even as familiar as those Ten Commandments are. 
Uh, what David Foster Wallace will talk about in his commencement speech, which is absolutely brilliant and stunning and profound, what he's talking about is the sort of self-centered worldview that we kind of, our default approach to life, which is the worship of self, and how that default approach to life is crushing. It crushes people. And so he talks about that and he talks about different ways for him as a non-Christian, different ways that he can see people maybe finding a way out of that constant pressure. What I want us to pay attention to today, to, to today is a different kind of society value. And, uh, and it's a value that we could say is just like the sovereignty of the people. Uh, the sovereignty of the people, that we the people have some degree of sovereignty or we approach life as if we are in charge, that we have authority and we get to determine our own way in life. Now, there's a philosopher named Charles Taylor that talks about this. Uh, he has a little book called Modern Social Imaginaries. And when he's talking about a social imaginary, what he's talking about are the sort of frameworks of life that have so long governed society or governed a people that they're very subconscious. They kind of like fly under the surface, but they've set the basic framework through which we approach life and approach the world. And in the book, he talks about different social imaginaries, different like presuppositions that we carry in life. And I think there are some in particular in this book that make it hard for us to actually hear the Ten Commandments as beautiful wisdom from a beautiful God for life in his presence. We tend to kind of like take parts of it and pick and choose and move away from it. And the reason why is, is what he calls, uh, what uh, Charles Taylor calls um, the sovereignty of the people. Um, so he calls it popular sovereignty. And, and here's what he, he kind of like works way back, way back in history and unpacks the sort of like the framework that's led us to where we are today. And I think by looking at the history, we can actually attend to something that feels significant for us. Even if you go way back before the American Revolution, like before the revolution, there were kind of different values in, in the kind of like colonies of the Americas that were beginning to shape people while they began to feel the evil tyranny of the British Empire, in particular King George. And so you're like, all right, I didn't come for a history lesson. Just hang on, hang on for a second. Hang on for a second. They were in a kingdom where they were being oppressed by a tyrant. They had no representation. They had no avenue to share their voice. The more they shared their voice, the more it felt like their kind of like obligations and their pressures and their burdens got heavier and heavier and heavier. And they finally got to a point where they said, enough is enough. We're done with the tyranny and we are not going to be a part of this kingdom. And in their desperate desire to escape from the kind of dominion of this tyrant, from this oppressive kingdom, they made a declaration. A declaration of independence where they declared that they were going to be a whole new nation. They were freeing themselves. They were throwing off the oppressor, pushing away from his reign. And in that declaration of independence, they began at what precipitated eventually the Revolutionary War. Which is the war where the American colonies are fighting against the kind of like uh, British oppressor. And throughout the war, like really powerful things happen, crazy turns of events. But when they finally are free, they begin to kind of craft, what are we going to be as a new nation? Like what's the foundation of this new nation going to be? What the foundation of the old kingdom was, was oppressive and brutal. But now we have the opportunity, having been freed from that dominion, having been freed from that kingdom, we have the opportunity to lay a whole new foundation a new foundation, and this foundation is laid through what we call the Constitution. Uh, the Constitution, so in 1787 and 88, it's written, drafted. In 1789, it's ratified. What's interesting to me about the Constitution uh, is it's laying the kind of foundational framework for the way that we're going to think about society. And I want to ask you all, for those history buffs, what are the huge, if you've ever seen an image of, if you've ever seen an image of the Constitution, what are the huge words at the top? We the people. 
we the people, uh, when they're laying the foundation of who they are, it's a whole new way of life. Throughout every civilization in the past, the idea is that the kings are the sovereigns, the kings are in charge, the kings some have, have some endowed authority from the gods above, and, and they have the right. And it's one of the first times in human civilization and human history that humans, uh, as a populace, have decided no more oppression. We, the people, have the right to throw off the oppressor. We, the people, have the right to determine what is healthy and beneficial for our lives in this kingdom, in this society. And so they lay out the foundational documents of our nation under the authority of we, the people. And it's interesting because there are really powerful values in here. It's a really powerful document that has been governing our society in different ways with different amendments throughout history. But I want to read to you the, the preamble to it because it's just interesting thinking about the type of kingdom that are kind of like early ancestors in this nation uh, were creating. It says, we the people of the United States, here's the purpose, in order to form a more perfect union, to establish justice, to ensure domestic tranquility, to provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. What they're saying is we want a kingdom that's more perfect. That's better than the tyranny that we experienced before. And that more perfect king kingdom is going to have tranquility. It's going to have peace. It's going to have security. It's going to have um, domestic um, kind of protection around foreign powers. It's going to have opportunity for liberty and for prosperity uh, for all of its people. And so we are going to create a society that is actually allowing for the, the flourishing of humanity in this society. And all of it's happening under the authority of we the people. And it's just interesting because in their day, over 200 years ago, in their day, there was, a room, there was room for God in this kingdom. There was room for him. Uh, there are places in the documents like uh, One Nation Under God. There's other places where in the Declaration of Independence that we have these um, unalienable rights uh, that are supposed to be for all humanity but weren't given to all humanity. And so you have this kind of like room for God, but over time, when you establish a kingdom, which every kind of human civilization is established by some human agency, over time, the we the people have decided that there's less and less room for God. There's less and less room. And so God gets pushed kind of out of the centers. And I don't mean he should be in the center of the government. He should be in the center of every life. He's supposed to be in the center of every life, but we keep pushing him to the margins more and more and more. So over the course of the past couple hundred years, we the people have decided that God gets a little bit of space in our kingdom. He gets a little bit of space in our kingdom and we get to determine how much space he gets. You get to determine how much space he gets in your life. You get to determine what place God has in your life. And so you make decisions about how much he should be a priority, how much your life should revolve around him, how much you want the Christianity stuff to kind of infringe on your basic approach to life. But largely, we the people and we as individual people have determined our own path to flourishing humanity. In the Ten Commandments, where God is establishing his people, kind of like brings this revolutionary concept into this sort of framework that we live in every day. It brings a revolutionary idea into the water we swim in, which is we are not the sovereigns. We don't have the rights or the ability or the wisdom or the knowledge to determine what healthy life is, what flourishing society is supposed to look, look like. We can't, as creatures, determine what life in the creation is supposed to look like when life in the creation is determined and governed by the creator. 
And what's why I think it's stunning when you think about the Ten Commandments. It's a foundational document for the people of God, for in particular the people of Israel, after they have been liberated from the kind of evil tyranny of this oppressive kingdom of Egypt. They were under this evil tyranny, and they were crying out, but they weren't able to rescue themselves, to free themselves. The powers were too strong. The bondage was too deep. The slavery was too um, kind of overwhelming for them to uh, um, free themselves from. And so they cry out to God, and God in power, in absolute power and in grace, rescues them brings them out of Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai, and he's about to give them their, essentially their sort of foundational documents. Here's what life in my kingdom is supposed to look like. This is what will give you peace. This is what will give you tranquility. This is what will give you security. This is what will give you love. This is what will give you freedom, is when you come into my presence by grace, totally by grace, by my grace, and then you learn to trust in my kingdom ways, my wisdom, my voice, my sovereign rule. When you you allow me to be the king and the sovereign, and you submit to my, yourself to my good reign, there's flourishing life available for you. There's flourishing life available for you. The Ten Commandments lay the foundation for God's instructions for your life. God's instructions for life. Absolutely, and we'll see in this passage that none of us, none of us can attain to the sort of perfect obedience. But the whole idea, even in the sort of um, the way the Exodus is going to continue to move forward, is it's always dependent on God's gracious kind of redemption through the blood of a lamb. And there's always room in the kingdom for failure through sacrificial systems and the priesthood and ways that we continue to understand what, what it means to actually experience pure life before God, not on the basis of our perfection, but on the basis of the blood of an innocent lamb. Like that is the foundation of our presence. But as we live in the kingdom, as we live in the kingdom of God, as we experience life in the kingdom of God, we are designed to listen to God's voice and let him revolutionize the way we think about our life in this world. But we come into the Ten Commandments as the authority, as the judge, as the arbiter, and we'll give space for it in our life as much as we feel comfortable with because it's what we do. It's what you and I have done since day one. It's the water we're swimming in. And so the question I'm asking as I come into this passage is how do we look at a familiar passage and let God speak with the authority that he has into our life and let that authority push us and change us and lead us to these places of conviction and, man, I haven't oriented my life around him at all. And not to lead to shame or not to lead to pride, but to lead us to Jesus. To lead us to the one who laid down his life for us, who washed us, who cleansed us, who loves us, who secures us in his love and his peace and his rest, but who still exists to lead us to life. It's in his presence there's fullness of joy. It's at his right hand, our pleasures forever. His is the way. He is the way to life. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at, I have a few kind of themes uh, that I'm going to look at ahead of time. Then we're going to cruise through the commandments. I'm not going to cover all of them. Um, depending on our time, I might have to even move past a couple. But the idea of the Ten Commandments is it's laying a foundation, which is going to be unpacked in kind of very particular, contextualized way throughout the rest of Exodus. So the kind of governing ideals, these divine ideals, this divine wisdom that's framed up in the first ten words of God and the Ten Commandments are going to be unpacked in a particular society in a particular way over the next several chapters. And we're going to look at those divine ideals and some different pieces over the next coming weeks. So we won't look at these exhaustively. Uh, we'll be unpacking them in parts uh, over the next few weeks. But before we dive in, I want to give 
three themes in this passage um, in the 10 words that I think are, are powerful. One of the things that's interesting, this is not one of the themes, is the phrase 10 commandments is, is not altogether accurate. It's super familiar and we'll probably use it sometimes, um, but it's not altogether accurate. There's a Hebrew word for commandment. It's mitzvot. Uh, this isn't the Hebrew word for commandment. Uh, this is a Hebrew word for words. They're the 10 words. The 10 words of God, the 10 instructions of God, the 10 sayings of God that he's giving us to actually help us understand what flourishing life is supposed to be in this world. And so um, kind of some themes that we'll, we'll see in here, and I think it's just stunning. These are some areas where these 10 commandments, though there's similar framework to other treaties and other um, covenants and other systems of law and other, and other nations and people groups in the ancient Near East, they are, these are powerful and distinct in some really, really significant ways. And here, I'm going to give you three. One is, these are relational. It's about relationship. Two, they're revolutionary. And three, they're about representation. That's relationship, revolution, representation. And so here's, here's what I want us to see. All throughout these commandments, the whole thing is framed as God's desire for covenant intimacy, for relational intimacy with his people. God wants to relate to you. Not, not theoretically, again, not merely theologically, not like I get the right answers on the test. Jesus is with me always. I memorize that from Matthew 28. No, Jesus is with you. He's with you right now. Like Jesus is with me always, check, versus Jesus is with me. Like God is passionate about his relationship with his people. He's passionate about it. The whole kind of covenant is set up as kind of terms for this relationship. In relationship with God, what does it mean for us to live according to his wisdom while we live in his presence, with him in our lives? And, and even in this phrase we're going to see in a, couple, in a couple moments, there's this phrase of his jealousy. Like when we turn to other gods, it's like, it's like a, a righteous, holy, good spouse whose partner runs away from their love. He's just like hungry for us to return. Passionate about us finding life with him and joy with him and, and enjoying his covenant intimacy, enjoying his relationship, enjoying his proximity, enjoying his presence, that he is passionate about his relationship with you today. Today is like not just a day to kind of like go through motions. It's a day where God is like, I want you. I want you to enjoy life with me. I want you to walk with me. I want you to, to find hope in me and flourishing with me. I don't want you to keep turning to these things that will crush you. He's passionate about his relationship. Number two, it's about revolution. The whole kind of covenant, and particularly the 10 words, are largely framed as a, as a contrast to what they experienced in Egypt. That in Egypt, there was a kingdom that was crushing them, that they had lived in for 400 years, and they had largely assimilated to the values of the Egyptian kingdom. It was crushing them, it was destroying them, but they were worshiping all the gods of the kingdom, they were living by the way of the kingdom, and, and the Ten Commandments are framed as revolution against that type of a kingdom, a kingdom that oppresses people, a kingdom that demeans people, a kingdom that crushes life, a kingdom that burdens people and exhausts people and leads people astray from God. The kingdom of God is revolutionary, and not just revolutionary to the kingdom of Egypt, but the kingdom of God is revolutionary in our society today. It is revolutionary. God's wisdom and God's reign and God's ways ought to push against our way of thinking about life that ought to make our lives kind of begin to get shaped around a whole different value system. And my fear in my own life is like I've largely kind of like assimilated to the values of American society 
such that the kingdom of God is something that's like, again, I have some room for God in my kingdom, but I'm not letting him revolutionize my life because I'm afraid of what I might lose. I'm afraid of what that might mean. I'm afraid to surrender to his wisdom because it might mean pushing away from things that, that my kingdom as it has been has come to really love, really enjoy, even if those values and even if those practices in my life crush me. It's revolutionary. The wisdom of God is revolutionary. And the third is, it's about representation. I mean, what I mean by that is the whole kind of framework is not just about God being in relationship. It's not about him just revolutionizing the way we think about life and the world. It's also about us representing him in the world. It's about creating a, a new kind of people, a whole, a whole new people comprised of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue that begin to kind of like orient their life around his presence and actually radiate his presence in this world. That the way we live ought to be in, in Bible terms, holy, or in a maybe more familiar language, distinct, different. Because we, we have a God who gives life and he's revolutionizing the way we think about the world and he's bringing rest into our anxiety. He's bringing love into our hate. He's bringing harmony into our divisions and it ought to lead to a different way of thinking about the world. And we ought to be distinct people in this world. And those kind of themes, this desire for relationship, this revolutionary, these revolutionary ideas and this call to represent his character run all throughout the law, but in particular, these 10 words. And so I want us to do, um, we're going to unpack them. Um, the first four words um, are largely focused on our vertical relationship with God. And the last six are largely focused on what that vertical relationship with God ought to kind of manifest itself, how it ought to manifest itself in the way we actually honor the dignity and love of our neighbors around us, human beings around us, that we ought to honor their dignity and show them love. And so that's kind of how the framework works out. Um, I'm going to start with this first word, and I think it's I think it's powerful, but I want you to hear this um, from the Bible. We're going to start with the preamble. And I want you to be thinking about, in our heart, this desire to say, we the people, or I'm in charge. And listen to what God says. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God. Not we the people of Israel have determined a new way of life. I am the Lord your God. I created you. I am all present, all powerful, all knowing. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I am your creator and I am your redeemer. I have both created your life and designed your life with wisdom and intention and care and I have rescued you from bondage that was crushing you. So trust my words. Listen to my words. Follow my way. Pay attention to my voice. Like, slow down. I rescued you. Will you slow down and listen to me? Or will you kind of hightail it back into the values that crushed you? Pay attention to my words. And it says this. Commandment number one. Word number one. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, this is about the priority of God. It's interesting. Um, and this is, this is weird some people out. It's actually affirming, and, and many places throughout the Bible are affirming, that there are spiritual beings other than God. You're like, wait, I thought we were monotheists. We are. There's one God eternally existing in three persons. He is the only true God who reigns over all. He is sovereign, holy, unique in all his ways. He's the only creator. There's no one like him. 
And there are other spiritual beings in the world that are revealed all around the word. And all throughout the word of God, these spiritual beings have powers and forces that throughout all societies, throughout all history, are shaping value systems that pull people away from the reign of God. And what God says is, put me first. I reign over all. I'm the only creator. I'm the absolute sovereign. Put me first in in my kingdom as my redeemed people. Like, put me at the center of your life. Make me preeminent in your life. Like, orient your whole life around walking with me and trusting me and listening to me and hoping in me and coming to me. Like, make me the center. And this is convicting. Like, even just the past few days, I've been, like, reading through these, like, God, what do you want to light up in my life? And it's just like, I'm not first in your life. I'm not first. I wake up and I, like, run to get work done and I run to other things and maybe I spend some time to like check off a list or something but it's like to actually slow down say God you're first like good morning this is your day every day when we drive our kids to school uh, we sing that kind of you know the old uh, song I won't say cheesy but I love it uh, this is the day that the Lord has made we will rejoice and be glad in it we're like clapping and saying all sorts of goofy weird stuff that I would never repeat in public um, and, and but like every time we finish I'm like hey Remember, kids, who made the day? Jesus made the day. Jesus made the day. He made the day. The good parts? Yeah, he made the good parts. Did he make the bad parts? Yeah, he made the bad parts. Is he reigning over all of it, like the exciting things and the hard things and the boring things? All of it. All right, let's walk with him today. It's his day. He's the Lord of the day. He is the Lord our God. Put him at the center. Put him at the beginning. And I push out and I push him away and I push him to the margins of my life and of my day and of my thoughts all the time. And this call says, don't do that in my kingdom. Trust my voice. Put me at the center. And that might lead to some conviction. You're like, wait, are you like crushing us with law? No. Every time you feel the Holy Spirit like, man, that's not real for me. Just go to Jesus with that. He loves you. He laid down his life for you. Just like, Jesus, I haven't put you at the center. It's like, I died for you. I love you. I forgive you. Jesus, I'm going to need strength. I'm going to need help to turn to you. Okay, that's, that's called Conviction. And then confession and then repentance. These themes of like the Spirit's like lighting some stuff up in my heart of some ways I've went astray. It's conviction. So I confess that to Jesus. Like this is just an area where I've turned away from your voice. That's confession. And I, I want you. Can you help me to follow you and reorient my life around your love by the power of your Spirit? That's repentance. This is like daily themes for us. And as we work through this, like let the Spirit do that in your heart. I'm not trying to crush you with burden. I'm trying to actually lead you to Jesus who leads us to life. Commandment number two. Commandment number two. You shall have no other gods. Or sorry, uh, commandment number two. Do not worship graven images. It's interesting the language that he's going to use in here. And it's a pretty, pretty powerful language. And he's talking about carved images, so things that you can make in creation. But the theme stretches way out to worshiping anything in creation that you think can give you life. Like it's actually running, it's like if the first one's about priority, this one's about fidelity. It's about fidelity. It's about actually saying, God, you are the giver of life and I want to be faithful to, to come to you in this covenant relationship. I want to be faithful to come to you as, as our covenant partner that gives life. And the whole concept is that we are so prone in humanity as humans to find created things, things we can achieve or accumulate or gather or create or accomplish, things that we can do. And we bow down to them as if they give us life. And then they ask more and they ask more and they ask more and they ask more. And your life isn't getting better and better. It's getting harder and harder. And finally, you're getting crushed. And then you need a new God, a new God who will save you from that dominion. And so we come over here to these escape routes. 
and these distractions and these things that we think this can rescue me and this if I just get rid of that and, and do this, if I distract myself or numb myself or pursue this cultural narcotic or this certain pleasure as an escape from the burden. And these are us running to created things that can never give you life and can never save your life instead of running to God who gives and saves. The life giver and the life saver. It's God. So we don't turn to those other things. And in this context, he talks about his jealousy. It's using marital language of saying like he's like a covenant partner who's just so jealous. And you say like, I thought we weren't supposed to be jealous. Is it just like God gets a pass? You know, not exactly. Um, the phrase jealousy is about like really the, the term is about just like getting red hot. And often it's used in context of like getting red hot and jealousy against somebody else negatively. But there's also a godly kind of jealousy. The way Tim Keller talks about godly jealousy, he talks about it like angered love that stays love. Angered love that stays love. So it's like, I love you, and, I, and I'm, and I'm, this is God. Like, and I'm giving you life, and I've designed you, I've redeemed you, and you're running away from me. Like, stop running away from me. But he's not moving towards anger at you, or he's not moving towards, like, judging you and pushing you off. He's still pursuing you with faithfulness and with love. Like, it's, it's upsetting to him that we continue to run away, and he's jealous for our affection, jealous for our fidelity, because it was designed for our good. And so he's like passionately pursuing us in all of our wanderings, which is stunning to me. So he says, don't keep wandering to that thing again and again and again. Turn to me. There's an interesting passage in here where he talks about how he visits the iniquity of the fathers uh, to multiple generations. And so this is where some people get these ideas of like family curses or generational curses. And there's, there's like something to probably talk about there. That's not, what ha that's not what's happening here. Um, there's nothing that happened in a generation before you that makes you in some sort of bondage that Jesus can't rescue you from. There's nothing that happened by your parents or your grandparents or some, something somebody prayed over you or something that happened like that. Some of you are like, well, who thinks that? Some people do. And some people feel that. Um, it's not talking about, it's not like Jesus is going to punish you for the sins of your parents. Uh, nor is it like because your parents were faithful to God, all of a sudden Jesus is like, you're automatically in because your parents were in. It's not what's going on. What's going on is actually the way that we approach life has consequences and ramifications for subsequent generations. We will pass on to subsequent generations a lot of things. And there are kind of economic realities that we pass down. There are social realities that we pass down. There are psychological realities that we pass down. And those affect subsequent generations. You were affected by the economic, social, and psychological kind of experience of your, of your parents which is real. That's just real. Like they bore an image of God to you that shaped the way you think and you interact in the world. That's real. And Jesus can intervene in those places to bring rescue and redemption and healing and grace. It's awesome. But it helps us to think like, what are we passing on to the next generation? What loves, what treasures, what do you treasure in your household? Where do you go for life in your household? Where do you go for healing in your household? Where do you go for rest in your household? What, what are the things you're chasing after in life? What are you valuing in life? Know that by valuing those things, chasing those things, treasuring those things, by running to those places, you are shaping the next generation. You're shaping the hearts and the minds and the affections of the little ones around us or the friends around us, that we actually, the way we live shapes it. So Jesus is like, treasure me, put me at the center. And what you want to pass on to the next generation is Jesus is everything. He is everything. And we turn from him all the time. And his love and his grace is everything. I just want to pass on to my kids, like security in Jesus, not in retirement. Like joy in the love of God, not in their accomplishments. 
but it's hard because I got all that junk rumbling around in my heart. So Jesus is saying, turn to me, put me at the center, make me first. Then there's this uh, third word, which is don't worship any graven images. Or sorry, don't take God's name in vain. Um, don't take God's name in vain. So <laughs> what that's not saying is like when somebody says, oh God, you're like, wait, was that a D or an SH at the end? <laughs> you know, uh, God. Did they say God? Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's, not, that's not what's happening. Like, what a, what a lame commandment. Um, I'm, just like, I'm just like, if these are the 10, that one, that's not what's happening. It's way more significant. And it might include that, actually, just being respectful about the name of God, actual spoken name of God. It might include that, but it's way bigger. It's actually the idea of taking the name of God is about bearing his name or bearing his image or bearing this responsibility to represent him. And so to take his name in vain is to say, like, I'm a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian. I, I, I trust in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. He's my God. And it doesn't matter for me at all. It doesn't matter for me at all. I'm living like everybody else. It doesn't shape me. I'm not centered on it. Like I've actually taken his name upon myself as somebody that's supposed to be a part of a kingdom of priests, representing his love and character in the world, representing his kingdom in the world. And, it just, and I just don't. I've taken it vainly, worthlessly. I've taken this kind of like this identity as being one of the children of God and I've walked into the world misrepresenting his character by kind of approaching his reign and his kingdom and his voice and his word and his love and his people as something that's trivial, insignificant. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. The fourth word is this. It says, keep the Sabbath or remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Um, now this is an interesting, this is an interesting one in our society. I've been kind of like intimating different things about what God's doing in my life around Sabbath over the past few uh, weeks or months. It feels really significant to me. We're going to take a whole Sunday on Sabbath and, and what it means and what it doesn't mean and what it's for and what it's not for. Um, but it is, it is designed by God as a part of his kingdom to represent two things. In his kingdom, he wants his people, one, to actually image his character as a God who worked hard to create the world and then took up his seat, his presence in the world to rest. And so this idea of actually working hard in the world and then enjoying, resting and enjoying the fruits of our labor. Like that's designed by God. So he created the fabric of humanity from the very beginning to show his nature, to bear his image. He created us to be people that reflect the way that we work and engage to work towards and whatever vocation God's given you, work towards human flourishing, work towards the good of society, work for the common good, and then create a day to like rest and enjoy the presence of God. Like to breathe. Don't keep working. You weren't designed to work seven days a week. You weren't designed to. Like, well, how am I going to make economic progress? You weren't designed to like that. You're designed to trust his wisdom, trust his word, rest. We are so quick to push away a pretty awesome gift. Like, wouldn't it be like, hey, I'm giving you a day of rest. Wouldn't you be like, yes, you know? Uh, well, we're like, no, I have too many things to do. It's a gift. But the other thing it images, and you can see this in, when the Ten Commandments are kind of repeated a little bit differently in Deuteronomy 5, is it's also reflecting the power of God to liberate us from a, a kingdom that was crushing us with burdens. So he talks about not just like reflecting him as a creator, 
that he created in six days and rested on the seventh, but also reflecting the fact that you were slaves in Egypt, getting crushed by inescapable burdens. And in my kingdom, it's not like that. My kingdom isn't designed to crush you. My kingdom is designed to like, cause you to flourish like a flower that's like growing and blooming and, and blossoming and actually so letting out seeds to start new flowers. It's like there ought to be flourishing, like a flourishing garden, not a trampled life. And in our society, this, the values of our society are crushing lives. Crushing lives with anxiety, depression, exhaustion, weariness, burnout, crushing lives. And a lot of our approach to Christianity is crushing lives with rules and burdens and all the things that you have to do and have to do for God to love you. He loves you. Breathe. Rest. And create space in your week to rest, to enjoy the presence of God, and to reject burden. To reject burden. Man. Like This has taken a lot of work for me to learn how to do. Um, I, I kind of like my Sabbath is on Saturdays. You're like, well, why isn't it on Sundays? What's up? <laughs> Good to see you guys. Uh, hey, hope you're enjoying your Sunday. Me too. I love this. No, I'm kidding. I really do. Um, but like, like just for me, I have to work hard on Friday to be able to rest on Saturday. But this, was, this foundation was laid in Exodus 16 with the manna. They're gathering twice the amount of manna on the sixth day so that they don't gather any on the seventh day. The manna they gather on the seventh day rots. God's like, nope. I'm not gonna make your life flourish when you're rejecting the rest in my presence and the joy that I've offered you. It's not a punishment, but God's designed us for a different way. And then the last several words, and these I'm gonna lump together and what Jesus talks about is love your neighbor as yourself. It's going to get into familial love and God has designed the family both in parental to child relationships and in husband and wife relationships to show something of his character, to show something of his character. So he's, he's created this filial relationship with us that he's our father and that we as his people are learning what it means to trust and to respect and to honor his voice and his authority and his love for us. And so in our human institution of family, children are to honor their father and mother because it leads to flourishing. Now, there are exceptions to that. There's brokenness around that. There's pain in this room that is, un, that is, that is hard. There's, I know, stories all around our church, hard stories of parents. It's not like trying to say, your parents were great, and you should really respect them for all the things that they did to you. Now, some of you did have great parents, great parents. I'm really thankful for, for my parents. They weren't perfect, but they were wonderful, and they did the best they could from where they came from. What does it mean to honor and respect that? Not merely because they are, deserve it or something, but because in this human institution, our relationship towards our parents reflects something about our relationship towards authority and towards the God who has authority and who loves you, who might be very different in his character from the parents you grew up with, maybe not. But to respect parents because of what it shows that and to respect the marriage covenant because of what it shows between God's relationship with us. Several times in the Old Testament, and you're going to see it again in the New Testament with Jesus' relationship to the church, the relationship between God and his people is portrayed as a marriage relationship with God as the groom and the church or his people as the bride and his faithfulness to us and his pursuit of us though we wander and we run and we run away and we run away and we run away and he is faithful again and again and again to his covenant relationship with us. And what he's saying is keep that covenant holy. 
Treasure the covenant. Never forsake your covenant and never live in a way or behave in a way to forsake somebody else's covenant. Never have sex outside of the covenant of your marriage. Never have sex with somebody inside the covenant of marriage. And that theme towards like sexual purity is going to get kind of played out all throughout the Old Testament as a really significant theme for what it means to reflect the character of God because sexuality is a gift to be enjoyed inside covenant. Inside secure love, there's intimacy and safety to be known, to be naked and unashamed. Treasure that. Keep it holy. Be naked and unashamed inside a secure covenant relationship. We weren't designed, it's a misrepresentation of our relationship with God to forsake that. And then there are these passages about do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, and do not covet. Really at the foundation of all of them is this call to not covet. Um, false witness, we'll talk more about that uh, next week. Neil will cover some of these things. False witness is in, uh, it's not just like don't lie. Um, it's actually about justice. It's about caring about justice. It's the whole framework is inside the courtroom type scenario where you're actually giving witness to something, a criminal charge against somebody, and saying never corrupt justice. There are going to be tons and tons of laws throughout the rest of the Exodus kind of narrative about the pain and the brokenness of corrupting justice. Jesus is saying, or God is saying, my kingdom is a place where we pursue justice. We don't corrupt it. And the, and the idea of justice in God's word isn't just kind of like make everybody equal. It's actually looking at people who have been marginalized and ostracized and working hard to actually restore them, to bring restoration for the flourishing of everybody. God's vision for justice is about fighting for everybody's flourishing, especially the poor, the marginalized, the oppressed. Especially. And even sacrificially. It's powerful. We'll talk more about that over the next couple of weeks. And then there's, and kind of under all of it, this image to not covet, and which many people say is the foundation for what it means to love your neighbor, which is to essentially come to a place where you're secure in who God made you to be and what he's given you, that you're not constantly grasping and grasping and grasping, which leads to murderous desires, leads to kind of like lying, deceiving, stealing, injustice, because what we want is we want more, we want lifted up at the expense of others. And our whole society is built on covetousness. Do you know that? Like whole, all of advertising is built on like, look what they have, look at the life it gave them, so don't you want this? Yes, if it'll give me that. If it'll give me more, it's not saying it's all bad, but when you start craving and grasping and hungering for more and more and these desires and this discontent that starts like reaching, what that does to suffocate your soul and lead you into all sorts of hatred and division and pain and pride and shame is crushing. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom, trust me. God is saying, in my kingdom, trust me. I love you. I've designed you. I've created you to be content in me, to put me at the center, to come to me for life. So that way you're constantly not grasping. Really the first and the last frame the whole thing. Find your sufficiency in Jesus so you can kind of release your grasping and find rest with him and with his people in this world. This is the design. And the reality is we've all turned from it. We've all fallen short. We've all kind of gone astray. It's interesting in the kind of when you get to the New Testament, Jesus talks to somebody. There's a young man who comes up to Jesus and he's like, what's it gonna take for me to get into the kingdom? And Jesus is like, well, as in Mark chapter 10, 11. He says, well, you know the commandments. Honor your, father, honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. And he says, I've kept all of these since my youth. And Jesus, it says, he loved him. It says he loved him. So here's what he said. Because he loved him. He said, one more thing you lack. Go sell all your possessions. Take the money. 
and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And it says the man went away sad because he had great wealth. And he's saying, I, I'm not ready to put you first, really. I'm not ready to love my neighbor as myself, really. I'm not ready, really. And you're like, well, could anybody do that? And the reality is like, well, Jesus did. He did that. He gave everything for you. Everything. And so the goal is not to shame us like, well, you're not quite living up. The goal is to let this law lead us to Jesus. We've all fallen short. We've all turned astray. We've all wandered. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And we need a savior. And Jesus died on the cross, giving himself for us, not merely to forgive us and give us a ticket to some eternal like paradise, but he forgives us. He cleanses us with his blood. He washes us and he gives us his Holy Spirit so that we don't have to look at a rule book and think about what it's going to take to obey all these rules. This is too much for me. But we depend on his spirit and let his spirit give us all new desires. I want to put you first. I, I want to turn away from these things that are destroying my life. I want to represent you in this world of faithfulness. I want to enjoy your presence and enjoy your rest. I, I want to honor my parents and I want to reflect your kingdom with my family. I, I want to actually honor the possessions of other people and not covet and grasp and steal and manipulate. I want to be with you. I want to enjoy you. I want to, I want to walk with you. Because that's where flourishing life is found. And it's his spirit that leads us into that kind of life. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we need your help even now. Um, where there's conviction, I pray that it would lead to this really beautiful uh, turning. It's your kindness that leads us to repentance. Not your, not your anger, your kindness, your constant kind of like inclination towards us, your constant pursuit of us. And so would you right now pursue people where there are people feeling shame or um, intense guilt? I pray that you would um, remind them of your presence, that you are a God who when we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I pray that the motivation of turning or maybe reorienting aspects of our life wouldn't be to, to be proud or wouldn't be from a place of shame, but would come from security in your love, a desire to walk with you, a desire to enjoy the life that you made us for. So lead us into life. Jesus, show us your love, your grace, your faithfulness, and help us to walk with you as a people in this world. In Christ's name, amen.